Well, we're going to be in the book of John this morning. John chapter 9. Uh, in this particular part of the Gospel of John, we've been uh, in a couple chapters that are dedicated to what is called the Feast of Booths. And so the Feast of Booths is a, a ceremony, a, a feast that the Jewish people would celebrate once a year, and they would go down to Jer- or they go down or up to Jerusalem. And they would uh, celebrate the, the, the time where God had led them out of the wilderness, um, out of the land of Egypt, and into the land of promise. And they would celebrate that. that there, there'd be all these elaborate rituals, and they would uh, celebrate that in different ways. That for, there'd be special drink offerings that they would present, and uh, they would celebrate that with candles, and um, they would celebrate that with special sacrifices. And so from the beginning of chapter 7 really till the middle of chapter 10, there's all this imagery that's related to the Feast of Booths that Jesus is u- using to connect the, the, the calendar to himself. He's trying to help them see that he is the light of the world, that he is the living water, that he is the only one that can give sight to the blind. He's the only one who can shepherd his people. And today we reach what I think is the climax of the Feast of Booths um, in John, John 9, where we see that Jesus uh, ministers to a blind man here, and a man who's been born from blind, born blind from birth. And uh, we, we'll see here clarity, not only about what, who Jesus is, but a clarity about what he does in the life of Christians. Now, normally, when I preach through a long pas- or passage in the Bible, I'll, I'll read the passage out in its, in its, in its entirety, and uh, we'll, we'll talk about it. Um, but sometimes when I come to a particularly long passage, we will cover just a little bit at a time. We'll cover this, and then we'll talk about it, and then we'll cover this, and we'll talk about it. And that's how we're going to do John 9 today. So I'm just going to, for now, read the first seven verses, and then we're going to come back and we'll finish reading through the chapter as we go through the sermon. But John 9 starts off this way. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he was born blind. Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Father in heaven, one more time, we pray that you would help us to see your son today. You would remove the scales from our eyes, that you would remove the dullness from our ears, that you'd remove the hardness from our hearts, that we might see him and worship him. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Who do you think that he is? Who do you think that he is? Just a few hours before, this man who had never seen anything suddenly could see. And now he's surrounded by faces which are unfamiliar, but voices which are very familiar, pointing their fingers at him, You can imagine in the background are his neighbors, maybe even his parents. And they're all wanting to know, who do you think that he is? I believe that question is the same question that you and I must answer. Who do you think that he is? And maybe you're here today and you're wondering that question. Saying, I'm not sure who he is. 
Maybe you're here today and you've been in church for a long time and you call yourself a Christian and maybe you've started to drift and you're starting to wonder, who is he really? Or maybe, maybe you're here today and you're going through suffering. You feel like the, the man who's been blind from birth, whose suffering is not of your own doing. And you're, you're wondering, if, I'm, if God is who he says he is, if Jesus is who he says he is, why am I still suffering? For each of us, we must answer this question. Who do we think that he is? Who do we think that he is? Not only who do we say that he is, but why does it matter? What does it do for us? How does it change us? It's these two questions, who do we say that he is, and why it matters, what it does, that undergird this story. So today what I want to do is I want to walk through this story. There's about seven scenes in this story. I want to walk through the story, and then I'll talk about these two theological principles, and then we'll, we'll turn to apply this. In this first scene that we see from verses 1 through 7, we see that Jesus is walking by a, a man who is blind from birth. Now, Jesus walks by him on purpose. Jesus knows what's going to happen. Jesus goes knowing exactly the conflict that it's going to provoke. He knows the conversations that it's going to cause rise to. Jesus is being intentional. And we'll see that he is sort of picking a fight with the Pharisees. And, and uh, he's, Jesus is doing what he's doing on purpose. Our God is not a God of coincidences. And our Savior is not a Savior of coincidences. He chooses to go by this man blind from birth. And the disciples who don't know any of this are standing around him. And they think, uh, they ask Jesus this innocent question. Rabbi, who sinned? this man or his parents, that he was born blind. It's actually a legitimate question because there are parts of the Old Testament which would be taken to imply that suffering comes from sin. And sometimes the suffering of children comes from the suffering of parents. And that's not wrong in, or the sin of parents. And that's not wrong in every circumstance, although it's certainly not true in every circumstance. We think of Job, for example. It's not true that all suffering comes from sin. And Yet, you can understand why the disciples, who feel like they have an inside man, uh, could ask this question to Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned? And they're, they're just trying to get Jesus to weigh in on this question. And Jesus, you can almost sense consternation in his response, says it was not this man that sinned. So the answer is no. It was not this man that sinned, or his parents for that matter. But rather, his suffering is so that the work of God might be displayed in him. Let me just say this. No matter what you are going through this morning, no matter what problems you're having in your life, or no matter how many frustrations you have at work, or no matter what you feel like with your relationships, whether they are the cause of your own sin or not, the suffering that you have is so that the works of God might be displayed. There is no suffering that takes place in our lives which is not taking place so that the work of God might be displayed. It takes place in different ways, and, and God shows his glory to us uh, in, in dark times, in different ways, in different seasons. And yet all suffering is so that the work of God might be displayed. All right, that one's for free. Jesus answered, so we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Jesus is saying that night is coming, that darkness is coming, there's a day that's coming where I'm going to die, and I won't be here. 
And then he says, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Remember, the Feast of Booths. They're celebrating the Exodus. They're celebrating how God had led Israel out of Egypt as a pillar of fire. And Jesus says, I am the light of the world. I am the light. Jesus is saying this at this time for a reason, on purpose. He is claiming that he is going to give light just like Yahweh led Israel out of Egypt as a pillar of fire. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. One of my favorite miracles. Then he anointed the man's eyes with mud and said to them, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Jesus spits into the ground and he takes the mud that comes from the spit. I'm glad my son is not here to hear this sermon. Spits in the ground, takes mud from the spit, and then puts it on the eyes of the man who's born blind. Why doesn't Jesus just say, go and see? Why this very visceral, this very gross way of healing the man born blind? Let me give you three interlocking reasons. All right, Number one, for whatever reason, uh, Jesus tends to heal people this way. There's at least three or four different occasions in the Gospels where Jesus heals people by spitting into the mud and putting the mud on to people's face. Just one of the ways Jesus likes to work. Uh, I think that that's undergirded, but that's, this is not abnormal for Jesus. You can imagine the disciples watching this saying, not again. <laughs> Jesus does this on a couple of occasions. All right, let me give you a second reason. Um, this takes place, as we'll see in a minute, on the Sabbath. So this is Sabbath. There was a rabbinical regulation that when somebody spat uh, on the Sabbath, if it rolled over, this is a true story, if it rolled over more than two or three times, it was technically tilling a field. It's true. And it was violating the Sabbath regulations. We don't know how many times this rolled over, but Jesus is, this is true. I mean, it's a well-known statute. Jesus is kind of shot across the bow, picking a fight with the Pharisees. Jesus knows what he's doing. It's not an accident that this is happening, when it's happening, the way that it's happening. Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. He knows exactly who's going to be upset about it. He knows exactly what they're going to say, and he knows exactly what he's going to do. Second reason. Here's the third reason. This language of bringing sight out of blindness, this language of recreating mankind out of the dust of the ground, bringing dirt out of water, is the language of new creation. So Jesus is healing in such a way that it would be interpreted in light of the new creation promises in the Old Testament. So just like when God created the first creation, he brought dry land out of water. And just like when God brought the people of Israel through Exodus, he brought dry land out of water. So Jesus, when he is healing this man, uses mud and dirt and spit to indicate that this is the beginning of the new creation. So when Jesus heals this man, he is hinting at and indicating that he is beginning and initiating the work of recreation of the new creation of beginning the work of the new covenant. 
and he sends him to go to the pool of Siloam. And just imagine, if you will, if you will, you are this blind man. You've never seen somebody just put something that sounds and looks and t- it feels very gross on you, and you're feeling your way. And you go down to the pool of Siloam, which was used for rites of purification. And you go down to this pool and you dip into this pool to wash yourself. And you wonder as you are traveling down this road, down to this pool. And somebody, you can imagine, maybe even somebody's holding his hand while he's trying to wash himself. And you're wondering, who, who is this that he would send me to do this? And the story, and he comes back seeing. And the story continues in verse 8. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. So here is the man, his family or his friends, his community around him. And they, they're not even sure if it's the same guy. Like it looks like him, but he can see. It seems strange. And so they're, they're, they're wondering, is it, could it really be him? And all along, it says he kept saying it. Said, that implies that he had to say more than once, I am the man. It really is me. And so they ask, well, how, can it, how is it that you can now see? How, how are your eyes opened? He answered, well, the man called Jesus. And you can even sense here that, that he's not quite sure who Jesus is yet. He's not quite sure. I mean, they called him a rabbi, but he made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. He says, and that's what happened. I went to Siloam and I washed and I, got, I was able to see again. And they said, well, where is he? He said, I, I don't know. Verse 13 says, They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. And some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such things? There was division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, He's a prophet. So his neighbors, they're so confused. They bring this blind man to the the Pharisees. And the Pharisees start to to question him because it's a Sabbath and somebody spit into the mud and it's rolled over. They they don't know what's going on. And the Pharisees asked him how he'd received his sight. They're just trying to figure, get to the bottom of it. And he says, Well, he put mud on my eyes and I wash and now I can see. And the Pharisees start to argue amongst themselves. Some say, well, there's no way he can be from God. How could he work on the Sabbath if he's from God? And others said, but if he's a sinner, how would he be able to do that? And there's division and disagreement and confusion about him. And so they turn to the blind man and they ask him this question, the same question that you and I all have to answer. There's nobody in this room who does not have to answer this question. What do you say about him? Who do you think he is? And you can almost sense 
the gospel writer John's disappointment with this answer. He's a prophet. In the gospel of John, when somebody calls Jesus a prophet, it's somebody who hasn't quite figured out who Jesus is yet. So you see this with his disciples in chapter 1. You see this with the woman at the well in chapter 4. He's, he's a prophet. He is, but not quite. The Jews don't know, quite know what to make about this. And so their story continues in verse 18. The, the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight, and they asked him, Is this not your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but now he, but how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So the Jews called his parents before the, 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 the council. And they, they called him in and they, they asked him, is this your son who was born blind, who you say was born blind? And how is it that he can see? Now, we might read verses 20 and 21 and 23, and we might say, well, they're answering accurately. They really don't know. And that's true. They, they, they are answering accurately, but th- this is a shame and honor culture. They are putting distance between themselves and their son. In a shame and honor culture, you expect a parent to say something like, I trust him. If he's telling you the truth, if he's talking, he's telling you the truth. But instead, the, the parents put distance between. They say, well, yes, he's our son, but we're not sure how he can see. Just ask him. Let him talk for himself. We're not, we're not going to get in the middle of this. And you can tell that the gospel writer sees that this is a that this is a um, this is a, a almost a, a shameful thing that they're kind of putting distance between themselves and the and, and their son because he says his parents said these things because they feared the Jews they were they they kept listen to this they let their fear we saw this earlier in chapter seven they let their fear keep them from the truth. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he should be put out of the synagogue. And of course, if he's put out of the synagogue, his economic ties to the community are cut. His, his friends and family will shun him. And so they're, they're afraid of the loss that would come with this. And they say, ask him. So for the second time, it says in verse 24, they called the man who'd been blind, and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. And they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, 
you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. Man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin. Will you teach us? And they cast him out. So the, the Pharisees call this man in for a second time. And they say, give glory to God. And that's an expression in the Gospel of John that implies this is already a foregone conclusion. We've already made our decision. We already know the answer to this question. They're not even asking him to agree. They're just asking him not to disagree. If this man wanted to, he could have been diplomatic and tactful and pretty much gotten off maybe with a slap on the wrist. But he has a little bit of sanctified snarkiness. They say, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And he answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know. I know this one thing. I I figured this much out. You can see the gears turning. You can see the, the blind man himself is beginning to see, not just physically, but spiritually. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They answered, they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And I just, I love this. He answered them, I've told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? He knows the answer to that question. And they reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. They respond, they're, they're, they're saying, we, we are the disciples of Moses. We, you must be his disciple. We're not his disciple. And they're kind of on the defensive here. We know that God spoke to Moses, but we don't know where this man comes from, which is interesting because all of chapter 8 was spent telling us where he came from. So the, the man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. Again, sanctified snarkiness. I love this. You do not know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. And then he says this. This is his reasoning. We know that God does not listen to sinners. True, it says that in the Old Testament. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Again, says that in the Old Testament. True. He's saying two things that are true biblically in the Old Testament. The Pharisees would have known this to be true. Then they says something that's true from experience. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. So have you heard that? I haven't heard of that. Have you heard of that? I, I don't know that. Three pieces of evidence. And he says, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. In other words, he says, you might not know where he's from, but I do. And you might think he's a sinner, but I don't. And you might be blind, but I'm not. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Now here's this man. He's been questioned by his neighbors and he's been not quite disowned yet by his family and he's been cast out by 
the Pharisees. And it's at this moment when he's at his lowest, when he's at his most abandoned, when he doesn't have anybody else that Jesus heard that they had cast him out and found him. Jesus, by the way, knows when they had cast him out. Jesus is waiting for news to travel. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? That title, of course, for Jesus is taken from Daniel 7. It's the title that, that describes how there will be a figure that comes and who will take his place alongside the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7 and will reign with him and establish an everlasting dominion and a kingdom that will not fade. And, and any God-fearing Jew, of course, would have believed that there would be a Son of Man, there would be a Messiah. But Jesus, when he's asking that, is saying, do you believe that I am the Son of Man, that I am the King who's going to reign, that I am going to establish my kingdom? And he answered him, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? The man says, I got, I'll believe in him, just tell me who he is. Who is the one who gave me sight? And notice the, the, the way that Jesus describes this in verse 37. It's very telling. He said, you have seen him. It doesn't say you see him now, actually. It says he had seen him. But that is not true because, because he actually hadn't seen him when Jesus put the mud on his eyes, he went and washed in the pool and he never had seen him. This is the first time this guy actually sees Jesus. Unless he's not talking about physical sight. Unless he's talking about the eyes of the heart. Unless he's talking about faith. You have seen him. And it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, I see, I have the living water, I'm following the light of the world. Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. That word worship is extraordinarily appropriate. In the Middle East, when when kings would, uh, would, would be established, especially after the days of the Persians, uh, people would enter into their presence and they would prostrate themselves before the king. It was the king's way of saying that they were divine, that they were somehow godlike. So when this man comes before Jesus and he bows before him and he proskuneo before him, he is not only saying that he is king, but that he is divine. He is not only saying, you open my eyes. He's also saying, only you can open my eyes. He's not just saying that you you are the Messiah, but he's saying that you are the one who rules next to the Ancient of Days. And Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world, that those who do not may see, and those who may see become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and he said and said to him, 
Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt, but now that you say we see, our guilt remains. So Jesus, after this event, says, I came to to this world to judge. Of course, when he says that, we've got to remember what he said in the chapters leading up to this, that the judgment which he judges with is not his own, but it's his father's. He said that those who do not see, do not may see, and those who may see become blind. What Jesus is not saying there is that he comes to give blindness to some and light to others. Rather, what Jesus is saying is he's saying, for those who know they are blind, I've come with sight. But for those who think they see, who say they see, who claim to see, their blindness persists. Which is why the Pharisees who are near him, who are watching this event probably with some, with, with some uh, mockery, ask, are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, in other words, if you knew that you were blind, Jesus is not denying they're blind. He's saying, if you knew that you were blind, you would have no guilt. Why? Because Jesus came to forgive those who know that they're blind. But now that you say, we see, now that you claim to see, even though you don't, your guilt remains. Who, who is Jesus in this passage? Who is he? Is he a good teacher? Is he a really smart guy? Is he a huckster? Is he a religious leader? Is he someone who can amass a large following? Is he merely a charismatic teacher? Who is Jesus? Some people think he's a rabbi. Someone who comments and teaches on the law. Certainly is true. At one point, the blind man even says he's a prophet. Certainly true. He speaks words from God. The blind man also calls him a man. Yes, he's totally human. Yet there's a number of things about this that indicate to us that he's more than blind. Or that he's more than a man. That he's more than a rabbi. That he's more than a prophet. We see that he is the light of the world. Just as Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, led his people out of Egypt as a pillar of fire, so Jesus leads his people out of sin and death and slavery as the light of the world. He is the light of the world. He provides sight for the blind, as we saw in Psalm 146 earlier today, that when Jesus or when God provides sight for the blind, it, it, it heals them. And so Jesus here provides sight for the blind. He is the king, the son of man, the one who sits next to the ancient of days and rules with him. Who is he? He's worthy of our worship. See, you cannot read these passages from, the, from, Psalm, or from John 7 and John 8 and John 9 without coming to this conclusion that he is the I am, that he is God himself, that he is worthy of all praise and all honor and all glory and all worship. Yes, he's man, but he's so much more. He's God. He's the one who satisfies us with his goodness, as the prophet Jeremiah says. He's the one who gives living water, as the prophet Jeremiah says. He's the one who provides the new creation, as Isaiah says. Jesus is God himself in flesh incarnate. And one of the ways that we know that this is a true story is it makes use of what the scholar Richard Baucom calls 
um, protective anonymity. If you were here for the seminar on, uh, on John 8 after church last Sunday, you know that oftentimes in the ancient world when there was a well-known figure who was an eyewitness testimony, testi- uh, eyewitness, provided eyewitness testimony to an event, especially one that could be damaging, especially one that, which they could uh, suffer greatly from, that the, the author of that account will keep their name anonymous. And what we see here is the man who's been blind doesn't have a name because probably his life was in danger. John is making use of this. He's trying to protect his identity. It's, a, it's one of the ways that we know that this is eyewitness testimony. That the man who was born blind himself talked with the gospel, the, the author John and said, this is what I experienced and this is what I lived through and this is what it was like. And this is how I know that Jesus is who he says that he is. And this is how I know that Jesus is the light of the world. Who is Jesus? Jesus is nothing other than the God of the Old Testament in human flesh. And the question is, what difference does that make? Why does that matter? Is that just a good fact? Is that great for apples to apples or playing trivia games? What does it matter? It matters for everything. Matters for everything. In this passage, we've learned not only a profound, what we'd say would be Christology, that's a study of the person, the work of Jesus Christ, but also a profound soteriology, that's a study of salvation. This passage teaches a profound salvation, a study of salvation, a profound theology of salvation. It tells us that this man who was blind was totally transformed. Uh, This passage uses the imagery of of blindness and of seeing to indicate the reality that we call regeneration. Regeneration is what 2 Corinthians 5.17 says when it says, If anyone is in Christ, behold, he is a new creation. The old has passed, the new has come. They've been regenerate, recreated, made new. The Apostle Paul describes it this way in Ephesians 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. That's what regeneration is. It's when the blind begin to see. It's when the dead begin to live. It's when the guilty become justified. It's when the old passes and the new comes. Now Paul describes it this way in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. In the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, when he says this, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. 
But you are washed. You are sanctified. You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That every person who's been in Christ can say with total integrity what the blind man says here. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Because when you come to see the light of the world, when you come to see the Son of Man, when you come and see Him, you cannot go away unchanged. This man goes from a beggar to a bower. He goes from begging at the, sight of the, uh, at the side of the road to bowing in front of the king of ages. This man went from being blind to being able to see, from doubt to belief, from guilt to justification, from death to life, from an orphan in the street to adopted into the court of the Most High. If you are in Christ, this is your story too. If you have put your faith in Jesus and you are a follower of Jesus, if you have grabbed hold of him by faith, this is your story too. That you were once blind and dead in your trespasses and sins. And by grace you've been saved and made alive together in Christ. And such were some of you. If you want to ask yourself a really confusing question, I asked Kyle this week and he asked it back to me. It wasn't fair. I think I know the answer. But at what point in this story does this guy become converted? Is it when Jesus first gives him sight? Is it when he says that he's a prophet? Is it when this man stands up to the Pharisees? Is it when he comes before Jesus and bows at his feet? What point does this man become a Christian? At what point is this man born again? And there's not a firm answer to that question. But what matters is that he clearly was. He clearly was changed. He clearly was regenerate. He clearly was made new. He went into the story being blind and he came out seeing. He went into the story begging and he came out bowing. You see, for many of us, the reason that we sometimes think that we're saved is because we said a prayer. And that's, how, that's where I trace my conversion moment to is when I said a prayer. We came down the aisle at when, during an altar call or we raised our hand at VBS. I have no doubt that there are people in this room who have been genuinely, truly saved from each, in each of those experiences. And yet it is not the expression of your faith that saves you. It's not the expression of your faith that saves you. That might have been when it happened, but it's not the expression of your faith that saves you. It's the object of it. What matters less is than how you got saved is who you were worshiping at the end of it. Is the change that you were undergoing. 
Some of you know for a fact, you know the moment and the instant when you put your faith in Jesus. And for some of us, we'd say, I, I can't remember a time not knowing him. I just, I believe in him. And I see fruit. I see progress of my faith. And, and for all of us, there was a time when we were blind and now we can see. And, and sometimes we can pinpoint that moment with accuracy and sometimes we can't. But that doesn't mean that didn't happen. Which also means this. It's possible to think that that happened when it didn't. It's possible to think that you've really had the scales washed off your eyes and you've really had the chisel go to the heart and you've really been born again. When there's no fruit, there's no change, there's no sight, there's no worship, there's no progress, there's no joy. There's a lackadaisical attitude when it comes to the Son of Man. You cannot see the Son of Man in His glory and go away unchanged. Which means, if this is your story... you should look like a man who's been changed or a woman who's been changed. You should look like you're regenerate, like you're born again, like you're made a new creation. That's what it means to go from blindness to sight, from death to life, from being far from God to being brought near. So as we turn to apply this passage, let me start there and ask you, who do you think that he is? Who do you think that he is? And is this your story? See, if you really truly believe that Jesus is who he says he is, it ought to change you. You ought to go to, from death to life from guilt and shame to forgiveness and joy. Who do you say that he is? Number two, if you want to see, it means that you must admit that you are blind. If you want to see, it begins with admitting that you can't see. In other words, if you would truly put your faith in Christ, it requires a humble edge. As we sang in one of our songs this morning, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Number three. There is no way to see. There is no way to see apart from seeing Jesus. This transformation does not happen if you and I do not encounter Christ. If we don't see him, if we don't 
understand him, if we don't look at him and gaze at him, Jesus will say in the chapters to come, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. To have a religious experience devoid of the person of Christ is not to be saved. There's only one name under which heaven and earth can be saved. And it's his. The only way to see is if you see the light of the world. Number three, or number four. True faith. True faith ought to lead to witnessing. True faith ought to lead to witnessing. You'll notice that when Jesus heals this man's eyes and he puts mud on him, he sends him to the pool of Siloam, which means sent. He sends him to go and testify in front of his neighbors and in front of his family and in front of the Pharisees. And he knows they're all going to reject him. And so it is with you and I. If we are saved, if we've been made new, if we go from blindness to sight then we too are sent into a world with the only hope of the world. We too are sent into a very dark place with the light of the world. We too are sent forth bearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. True faith leads to witnessing. Number five, true faith leads to worship. True faith leads to worship. True faith leads to worship. We see that in the case of the blind man. He says, Lord, I believed. And he worships him. True faith leads to having no other gods than this God. To worshiping no other gods, to making no other idols, to honoring and revering this God, this man, this Lord Jesus Christ. True faith leads to worship. Number six, if you look at all of this, this transformation, this change is being able to see Jesus. All of this is available to everyone who confesses Christ. And one of the saddest parts of this story is that his parents hold back from the truth because they are afraid. They're afraid of what it would take. They're afraid that they'd be sent out to witness. They'd be, they're afraid that they'd be sent out to worship. They're afraid. They're afraid of the loss because they can't see the gain. So if I could encourage you, Don't let your fear keep you from Christ. Don't let your fear of what other people would think, of what your family would say, of what your friends would talk about. Don't let your fear keep you from Christ. Of course there is loss to knowing Jesus. Arguably this blind man's life in some ways becomes worse after he knows Christ, not better. And yet there's such gain. There's such gain to knowing him, to having the living water and the bread 
of life. Don't let your fear keep you from Christ. And finally, if I can leave you with this, whatever it is that you're suffering, if that suffering comes as a result of your own sin or that suffering comes because of the losses that you take when you become a Christian, if that suffering comes because of the realities of living in a broken world, or if that suffering comes because you're a fool, your suffering was meant to display the glory of God. Your suffering was intended and meant and purposed and planned so that you could be a lamp for his glory. Your suffering was intended for the glory of God. The question is not if that's true. The question is if you and I can see it. If we have eyes to see the light of the world. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray today. We thank you that there are story after story after story in this room of people who can say, I once was blind, but now I see. People who can say, nothing in my hand I bring simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Father, we thank you that those who know their blindness, you give sight to. So I pray for all of us that you would help us to see your son, that you would help us not to be blind to him, but that you would help us to understand him for all that he is that we would one day with the saints of all times and all places be able to rejoice in his name and that we would see with greater clarity day by day his identity and his person and all that he's done for us and that it would all redound to your glory. It's in the name of your son that we pray. Amen.